Hey listeners, Jonathan here. I'm dropping in on the back catalog of episodes to let you know about a very special workshop that I'm putting together in April for fans of Mindful Money. In this workshop, I'm going to be covering the path to financial independence, or what we used to call retirement. I want to show you how to create an income stream that rises to meet your rising cost of living and lasts the rest of your life. I want to show you how to build a simple, resilient portfolio that requires the least worry and effort. This is how I manage my own money. And I want to show you how to manage and adjust income through a life of rising costs and volatile market. And as per usual, we're going to bring uh, the focus back around to those things we know add to happiness and support well-being when you do finally reach financial independence. You can register at the link below, courses.mindful.money forward slash mindful dash retirement dash review dash workshop. Thanks. I hope to see you in class. Whenever I define mindfulness for people, and I tend to use John Kabat-Zinn's definition of like paying attention, you know, from in a particular way with curious friendliness, it's a long sentence, from moment to moment without judgment. But I say, notice you didn't hear the word calm in there, and you didn't hear the word relaxation in there, and you didn't hear the word bliss in there, and you didn't hear the words clearing your mind or stopping your thoughts. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Hello, welcome back. On this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast, I'm chatting with Dr. Mary Martin. Mary is a trauma-sensitive mindfulness educator, a futures thinker, and the author of Mindfulness for Financial Advisors, Practicing New Ways of Being. She's certified by Brown University to teach mindfulness-based stress reduction and has a PhD from NYU School of Culture, Education, and Human Development. This is all to say that she's someone we should listen to. She's worked in financial services for over two decades, has been teaching mindful awareness to advisors since 2015. In April, she begins to teach her new course, The Future of Financial Advice, Practicing Well-Being and Connection with Julie Fortin, CFP, and a variety of other items. That's the one I recognize and know very well. Mary, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jonathan. I'm excited for this conversation, but before we get into it, I just want to let the audience know where are you calling in from, where are you connecting from? I'm connecting from South Florida, from Jupiter. It's on the east coast of South Florida. It's usually the point where when you see the weather channel where it says forecast is forecast for the hurricane to land, it's usually my town. So the weather channel descends on Jupiter, Florida usually, and sometimes we get hit and sometimes we don't. Wow. Did you grow up there? No, I grew up in New York. Okay. So when you were growing up, you know, you're a kid and you're in New York, what did you learn about money and entrepreneurship, you know, early? This is bad that I'm going to tell you I didn't learn it from my parents because one of them lives upstairs, my mom. So here's what I learned. My parents are, a, a they're both still with us. They are, my mom is a Buddhist and my dad was a seminarian. So my mom was an opera singer at the Metropolitan Opera in Manhattan. And both of them had a very contemplative lifestyles. And so they raised my sister and myself to really like, I don't even remember talking about money. It was like, what's important? What are your values? What kind of person do you want to be in the world? How do you want to show up on a day-to-day -day basis? And when you work, it's because you need to, you are going to work. When you work, it's going to be with people you love for a cause that you love in a place that you love and don't settle for anything less. So I got that message and Next door to me, fortunately, was a person who owned a BMW motorcycle dealership and just happened to love themselves some Mary. So when I was 17, my first job, I may have been, you know what? No, it wasn't my first job because I was a checkout person, a cashier at food fair. For that was my first job. But my first like real job was working in this BMW motorcycle dealership on Long Island. And these people, my neighbors who owned it, taught me business. Like they taught me how to, I was 17 years old. So I moved out of my parents' household very young. I had just turned 18. I left high school early and I worked full time. I had my own apartment and I learned how to run this dealership. I learned about, and they had like rudimentary, you know, computers and inventory. So this is like in 1985. 
So this is a long time ago, going to events and of course all about the motorcycles. So I worked there through college. I put myself through college and in New York and then in grad school. And so I loved these people. I loved what they were doing. And then when I was in, so I went to college for English and then I went to my master's for English and I saw some flyer about, you know, making extra money because I always needed you know, I worked full time. I went to school full time, but I was like, I could have some more money. And it was tutoring for the Princeton Review. So I end up leaving the BMW, and I was there for a long time. I was there for like six years. I end up leaving there, but leaving there, running it. So I was the manager of a dealership, and I was like in my early 20s. And I started working with the Princeton Review. Again, people I loved, a course that I loved, a founder, John Katzman, who was adorable. And his first assistant is one of my very best friends to this day. So I met people I adored. And I worked with the Princeton Review all through grad school. And I went to law school for 10 minutes in Vermont. And I taught at Dartmouth for the Princeton Review. And then through my PhD, again, the Princeton Review. And so what I always managed to do is find people who had wonderful things to teach me, like these amazing mentors, and work with fantastic, fun colleagues. And I was always making more money than anybody else my age. So that was like a tough act to follow. <laughs> but it was what I set up as my mindset and as my expectation for life. Like I'm going to work with fun people doing something that I like and that is really kind of invigorating for me intellectually. And I'm going to make a bunch of money doing it. So that's what I've always done. And then when I got to my doctorate, my doctoral advisor said, I'm going to put together a fellowship for you that's not like anybody else's and you're going to be a ghostwriter. He said, you write like an angel. I love that you can also edit. So you're going to be a ghostwriter. So I put myself through. So that was my doctoral fellowship was ghostwriting for at New York University. <laughs> Who knew that was possible? I probably shouldn't tell a lot of people that, but that's what happened. And then I parlayed that into like just ghostwriting. And again, working with people I loved really intellectually fantastic because I would meet somebody who would pay me a ton of money to learn something I knew nothing about and then write mm. a book about it. And so I know most people are like, that is painful. But to me, that was joyful and it was fun and it was invigorating. So I loved it. And it was projects. So every you know couple of months, it was a new person. It was a new location. It was a new topic. And I, you know, and I got paid all this money to learn something and write a book about it. So yeah. that's kind of how, and the important part there is it didn't start with financial services, but I got kind of into financial services, into a company that needed writing for CFP study materials, including items for their mock exams and for all of the various licenses. And so I got into financial services and ended up writing, I don't know, eight or nine books in the financial services industry, which led me to Susan Bradley and writing Sudden Money with her, and then later working with her at the Sudden Money Institute. Got it. So what did you learn about money entrepreneurship growing up? That's a title of a book. Everything I learned about entrepreneurship, I learned from my neighbors. I had this young family who lived next to us and young in that they were like 10 years younger than my parents who are already young. So they were, you know, when I was a kid, when I was like 10, they were like 21 and they had a BMW motorcycle dealership. And my first real job, full-time job was working for them as I was working my way through college. I left my house when I had just turned 18. I left high school early and I got myself an apartment and I worked full-time and went to school full-time. And they taught me everything. They had early computers. They taught me about inventory, about, you know, taxes, about sales tax, about event planning. 
about obviously management and people and the products and parts and service and all of these things I really didn't care that much about at the time. But what I cared about always was learning. So to me, it was just like I was just immersed in this learning how to do something. And it, you know, and it took me a couple of years. And by the time I was in my master's program, I was the manager of a BMW motorcycle dealership. Who knew? Yeah. It's interesting because I always talk about small business being like the greatest teacher of finance. Like you learn, you know, all the ledgers, all, I mean, you learn all the flow, cash flows, balance sheets, you learn all this stuff about personal finance by being a small business. But did you reach out to them? How did that first connection get made between you and your neighbors for work? Well, they saw me, you know, since I, we moved there. This is on Long Island when I was like in third grade or yeah, third grade. So I, you know, they were right next to me the whole time and they knew that I was super curious and they knew that I was very motivated. They knew I wanted to get out of my house. They knew I needed a job or a different job. I think at the time I was working your register at the local food fair and, you know, before there were scanners and you had to count the chain, you know, had to count backwards to give people change back in the olden days. And they just threw it out to me. They said, hey, you want to come work for us? And I was like, sure, that'll be fun because I loved them. And my parents really raised us to find work that we liked with people that we liked. And I loved them and I trusted them. And they were people who, for my childhood, and this is not the first time, I really looked out. I know, I talk about this now in 2023, when I was a kid, I was around people who really could have abused my trust. And they, and I spent time alone with a lot of people who were amazing, wonderful people who I trusted implicitly, but it could have gone all kinds of bad ways. And it didn't because they were all wonderful people. But Mm. back then, you know, you could spend the day with a guy who's 14 years older than you, you know, in a store by yourself. And like, I just, I would never let that happen. I have a tween now and I would never let that happen. So we trusted these people and we could trust these people. And they were kind of the beginning of a long line for me of mentors, of people who just said, hey, come here, kid. You know, I, I think you might be interested in this. Or, you know, my mentor at my doctoral program, hey, I think you might want to do this instead of the regular doctoral fellowship. And he ended up being my mentor. And so people kind of took me under their wing. And I always just went with it because I never had a bad experience. You know, this was not the, I wasn't going to go here, but this mentorship thing, I wonder, given that, because I was raised, I think, in the same environment you were, where we trusted our neighbors, everything was fine. You know, I spent lots of times with older adults and no one thought anything of it. And now we're so, I have an 18 and a 15 and I'm just like, I'm terrified of just letting, leaving them alone with adults that I don't know. And maybe that terror is unfounded. Maybe it's not necessary. I mean, I have to admit my own anxiety is probably coming out in that, but I wonder how much that will hurt them because they don't have the same access to building those mentorship relationships that we had in a much more trusting environment 50, 40 years ago, right? I'm going to do a little plug for Jonathan Heights, the coddling of the American mind and for the free range parenting movement. And I actually was a little off topic, but really started as a free range parent. And my kid like goes outside and she rides her bike to swim practice and it's dark out and it's a mile and a half. And I don't let her hang out with older adults. That's kind of like the line, but I encourage her to go out and you know, experience the world. And so it's definitely less than I did as I was a kid. You know, it's the joke with the Gen Xers that we left in the morning and our parents did not care where we were and we just had to be home before dark. So it's not like that. But I had to find a happy medium because I just couldn't be a helicopter. I just felt like my kid needs to experience adversity and she needs to learn how to navigate her way socially and she needs to learn how to advocate for herself and stick up for herself and she needs to learn how to defend herself, hence the early Taekwondo. So yeah, I'm with you on that and it is very clear that kids are not experiencing enough independence or adversity now. For sure. So I want to not mishear something you said and so I'm going to ask a clarifying question here. It sounds like 
you didn't learn a lot of financial lessons from your parents because your parents were contemplative, right? And you say like, I tried to get out of there. What your graduate high school, I got it. I got my apartment when I was 18. And it was my neighbors that sort of taught me these things. Were there important negative experiences as a child that led you to like being as independent as you were? Or was it just not your right environment? You know, I had a sister who was larger than life and was a bit of a television personality. And she was always, she got all the attention, you know, and she did whatever she needed to do to get it. And so I was really invisible in my household. And so it was very easy for me to become a ghostwriter because I was used to being invisible. So to me, it was like, so people would say to me, how could you do that? How can you write somebody else's book and not get credit? And I'm like, do you know how much money I got? Like, (laughs) it's fine. I don't care about the attention and the notoriety. So I got used to, I found a way to use, you know, being neglected as like a positive. And it wasn't really neglected, but it was like, I was invisible. I just was invisible. And I, the competition was very fierce and I was okay with it though. I was, you know, a weapons grade introvert. So I was fine. You know, I wasn't like complaining about this, but in high school, as you know, well, you may not know this. My husband is the only person I know who loved high school because he was like handsome and funny and everybody loved him. And I'm like, I wanted to kill myself in high school. Like I was legit depressed. And I, it was a horrible experience for me. And it was, I couldn't get out of there fast enough. So I left high school or I went to my guidance counselor and I said, I can't take this for another minute. Is there a way I can get out of here earlier? And so I left, you know, and they said, well, you can't leave now. We have to double up on this and this, but you can leave, you know, five months early. And I was like, done, I'll do that. (laughs) So, and then I found out I could leave my house too. And I thought, well, I want to do that. So I wanted to forge, I wanted to do my own thing. You know, I, and, but I wasn't the type to like run away from home or anything. I just wanted to be on my own. So I left. Yeah. It was, and I was like the last, my parents eventually got divorced. My sister left and it was kind of like a joke because my parents got divorced and lived in the same house, but they didn't want, you know, they didn't want to like leave the house. They didn't want my sister to be like in a house with just one of them and have to go back and forth. So they stayed in the house. Parents, Which creates its own weirdness. Yeah, so, <laughs> but it was like a new normal and they were all fine yeah. with it. So they eventually get divorced and my sister eventually leaves, but I wanted to do it. You know, they didn't kick me out. It wasn't some horrible fight. I just wanted to be on my own. Do you think as a kid being raised in a more contemplative household, do you you think you received any kind of messages about money or about personal finance that, you know, it's bad or wealth is bad? You know, the whole eye of the needle kind of a thing? Or was it just not spoken? No, it wasn't that it was bad. And we were in the middle, you know, financially. So we were like true middle class. And we were in Mm -hmm. a neighborhood where there were people who were a lot wealthier and less as well. So we didn't feel the pressure that we could feel, I would imagine. And it wasn't a huge deal. Everybody was friends with everybody. You know, I did go to Sweet 16s at the plaza. And I also went to Sweet 16s at people's houses. And kids got Jaguars for their Sweet 16s. And kids got nothing, you know. And it wasn't a big deal. And so it wasn't bad. It wasn't that wealthier people were bad. It was probably that they did something that got them more money. And, you know, my dad was like, a, he has, had a PhD and he was a high school administrator. And it was like, high school administrators don't make a ton of money. And my Just mom the way it is. stayed home. And then she, you know, worked her way through college and became a therapist. And, you know, it, but the way she wanted to do it, being home for us as much as possible, I can't work full time and be a parent the way that I want to be a parent. You know, which sounds a very familiar to today. You know, it's not that much different for women. Sure, you can work, but can you work and parent the way that you want to parent? Right. Which led me to building a career for myself where I was like, okay, if I'm ever going to be a parent, which I was very late to, by the way, I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And I need to have my life set up so I can do it that way. And I'm not going to rely on some job right. to do that. So were you meditating when you were a kid? I mean, your mom, you said your mom was a Buddhist, your dad was a seminarian. Did yeah. you have a contemplative practice and were you trained in that as a kid? We did from very young and all different kinds of, by the way. Yeah. So my mother wasn't just, she also was for a short time, she was an Orthodox Jew, but then she was like, okay, 
no, because she's also <laughs> a feminist. And those two things don't really go together. And so we learned about the world's religions. We did all kinds of meditation. And I, at one point, did TM for over 15 years and then ended up with mindfulness. So my whole life had something, some form of contemplative practice. I could mirror your story. Like I have a very similar story, raised with lots of contemplative practices. I'm not, I, we didn't have any money, but it's interesting to me that you somehow brought the two together. So you have the dealership that you manage and you grew up in and here's your neighbors and you've got this contemplative practice. How do you come together and say, okay, I'm going to teach financial advisors about mindfulness? Okay. Well, there's another piece in there. So there's contemplative practice, which I had. But I didn't have this piece of mindfulness. And no matter what the story is, you don't have this story. So the story is, it's 2002 or whatever. And I'm in Princeton. I'm at my cousin's house. And I start hemorrhaging, bleeding all over the place. Huge oh pain. Oh my gosh, what's happening? I don't at all get upset about it. And I call my doctor and I say, I'm going to come home from Princeton. I'm going, you know, there's something up with me. I don't even explain it. I don't go to the hospital. And so I go to the doctor later that week and he says, okay, so here's the deal. You're pregnant about five months and you're miscarrying and you have been for like the last eight days and oh my you God. still have this and you need to have a DNX as in like extraction. So that happens. And a couple of months, that's why I said you don't have this story, because I'm pretty no. sure you wouldn't have that. So a couple of months later, I'm at this party and, on Palm Beach, and it's at a therapist's home, and there's other therapists there. And I overhear one saying to another, I can't believe that happened to Mary. And the other one says, of course that happened to Mary. She doesn't live in her body. And I'm like, I am just never going to pass up a confrontation, but, you know, in an interesting kind of playful way. So I go up to her and I say, so tell me more about that. What is that about? And so she goes over to her bookcase and she, she gets, wherever you go, there you are. And she says, look, just read this. And I was like, no, but tell me more. She's like, this is my party. I'm not talking about this now. You know, therapist, she's got boundaries. She's like, I'm not talking about this now. Just take this book, read it, don't read it, I don't care. But that's why I made this comment. So I read the book and I'm like, oh. So with this contemplative practice all of these years, I somehow failed to recognize that I had a body. Yep. And that- Intellectual, very intellectualized. Yes. So yep. I was yep. this like brain walking around in a meat suit and I was, and but I was, what I was doing with my body was all superficial. So I was always in really amazing shape and I was a vegan since the eighties and I went to the gym all the time. I was a runner. So if you looked at me, you'd think, oh, she's really healthy and fit or whatever, which was true. But those are like those outer layers. I yep. wasn't paying attention. Like you have to have a special level of not paying attention to be walking around five months pregnant and not know it. And right. then you have to like exponentially multiply that to be having a miscarriage for a week and not think that maybe that's what that is. So that was a kind of an epic level of not paying attention to your body. And that's what her comment meant. Yep, for sure. So I stop the TM, I stop everything else I'm doing, I take the MBSR class, I become a woman obsessed, I take all the classes, I get certified to teach to kids for mindful schools, I start the MBSR training, I do the trauma training, and I really, any kind of somatic stuff I can get my hands on, and I do the polyvagal theory, and... So I really get into this like complete embodiment, practice of embodiment. And that's the thing I was missing. So I kind of played to my strengths for my whole life. I played to my brain and that was my strength. And I played to the part of my body that was like easy for me. So it was easy for me to, I mean, I took a lot of work, but it was like work that was easy for me, you know, to, I had a lot of, you know, dedication to running and to eating well. So that really wasn't that difficult. 
And then when I hit this piece of like sitting with yourself and facing what you're feeling, I was like, that was really hard. I think you're hitting on something that, so I hear people all the time, I don't meditate, you know, I run or I don't meditate, I walk in nature. Right. And I tell people, that's not meditation. That is not the same thing, right? And so you're hitting on why. And I've never heard it explained in such a beautiful way. You're like, you're not really paying attention to your body and sensing what's actually happening around you. You're just enjoying a nice, quiet moment, which yeah. is fine. It's all good stuff, right? Yeah. But that's so important. It that could be meditative. So you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And whenever I define mindfulness for people, and I tend to use John Kabat-Zinn's definition of like paying attention, you know, from yeah. in a particular way with curious friendliness, it's a long sentence, from moment yeah. to moment without judgment. But I say, notice you didn't hear the word calm in there, and you didn't right. hear the word relaxation in there, and you didn't hear the word bliss in there, and you didn't hear the words clearing your mind or stopping your thoughts. So, right. Right. and then they're like, wait, what? <laughs> Uh, so, yes, other things can be meditative and other things can be calming and they can be relaxing, but you're not on the cushion to calm yourself. Yeah, you're not doing the work. You're not, yeah, you're doing the work of getting to know your human experience, you yeah. know, the full spectrum of your human experience and to be able to meet all of it in the same way. And what I was doing is I was taking this whole chunk of the spectrum, the chunk that I didn't like, <laughs> and I was doing what most people do, which is avoiding it or pushing it away. And that's not what we do here in mindfulness. Just like we're not, you know, grasping to feel good. It's not about being happy and feeling good. And it's really hard to get people on board when that's your message. Your message is you're not pushing away your pain. You're not trying to be happier. Act your practice isn't I'm trying to be happier. You know, you're learning how to meet what shows you're putting out that welcome mat for the entire spectrum of your full human experience, all of it equally with curious friendliness. And that is so hard. <laughs> so I'm noticing two parallel things here. Like you, 20 years ago, 2002, you have this experience. And you said you're married to your husband for 25 years. Is that 22 what I heard? Years. 20, 22, 22 years. Yeah. So was it his practice in the financial advisory world that sort of introduced you to the to probably marrying these two? Or, or did you get to that from your work with the books and the authors? It was really before him and then being married to him. And he also, he does mindfulness though. So I would look at him and I'd be like, He's different from, so we have a huge social circle of financial planners, as you would imagine. <laughs> and me giving the, doing the work that I've always done, I know a lot of financial planners, and he's very different. And he didn't seem to have a lot of the same issues, or he's, there, there's an easefulness about him. And there's just a way of being that he has that, like, I had to work really hard for that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to get even close to that, but he just has that. And so it's part who he is, and then he works on it. And I'm just here working really hard at it. And I saw that there was a different way to be when I like compared, which, you know, we don't like to do that. We don't like to play the comparing game, but I will say that, yeah. that we do it because we're human. And I saw like, wow, they need this. You know, he's got this. He, nobody, he doesn't tell anybody. He keeps it a secret. He doesn't go around talking about his mindfulness practice. But I felt like, okay, they need to do this because there's so much talk of doing and so many scripts and so many checklists yep. and so yep. many tools. And it's about who are you and how are you when you're showing up to that person? There was recently this great article, once again, about ChatGPT, which I love and I love playing with and I love AI and I love futures thinking. So I'm a fan. And what this study showed, though, is that, so it's now capable of, like, quote, empathy. And it's a predictive engine, so it predicts what it should say based on the emotion response that you put in. So, you know, is that empathy? Who the heck knows? But it put in the perfect response, the perfect empathetic response. And the net message of the article was people prefer an imperfect human being to a perfect response. So what they're, what people are in business for with human beings, the people who are still choosing in people, humans, are choosing them because they're human. 
And because yep. there's something that they get from that, and that thing that they get might someday, and there's all kinds of work on it, be able to be gotten from a social robot of some sort. But, you know, in the next 10 years, that's not going to happen. So for the next so, 10 years, you're good. You're safe. So I'm just going to put these two, very literally put these. So what you're saying is mindfulness is a path to being more human, to yes. actually recognizing oh. and embodying your humanity. That is exactly what it is, Jonathan. That yep. It's because I was being that brain walking around in a meat suit. I was not embodied. And so what the practice, embodiment can't help people, it's such a weird word, but if you're not living in your body, like that woman told me I wasn't doing, and she's totally right. If you're not living in your body, you're not aware of what is happening from moment to moment, how you're getting affected by what people say, by what's in your environment, by the amount of caffeine that you had, by the fact that, you know, your leg hurts from yesterday and you don't even realize it by, you know, you're underslept and you don't even realize it. There are so many things to notice about your own experience from moment to moment right now. And if you don't have some kind of process, your own way, method, your own model for understanding your own experience, it's affecting you no matter what. So yeah, it's important to understand it's not, these are not benign things. Yeah. They actually affect your responsiveness and your reactiveness to everything, right? Yeah. They're not benign experiences, right? Yeah, right. It's, and it's not like, oh, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't, it matters because it it's affecting what you do from moment to moment and you don't realize it. And so in that way, it's like, my husband calls it a superpower. It's, but I don't want to do the superpower game, but it is like a superpower, but it's really a human power. It's like your superpower should not be super. It's your superpower is that you are a human being and you understand how you operate. And when you understand how you operate and your own suffering and where that comes from and what that feels like and your own regret and your own shame and your own pain, you don't understand somebody else through and through, but you are able to empathize. You are able, your own pain is a bridge to somebody else. And it doesn't matter what, you don't have to feel their pain. Like that's not a thing you need to do. It doesn't matter what their pain is specifically. It matters that you know of pain. Yeah, that is pain. What I'm seeing yes. is pain. Yes, yep. Yep. I know of that because I have touched my own, yep. which took so, me 42 years. Well, I mean, many people still don't know. I mean, we in our culture specifically, we walk around disembodied. I think it's an epidemic, right? Mm. I'm curious, what in particular makes financial advising so ripe for the benefits of mindfulness? It's so absent. You look at the knowledge topics for financial planners, right? For the CFP, they recently added investor psychology. So now looking at the investor and their behavior is important in 2023. That has become important, which is wonderful. But you know what's nowhere in there is the advisor and the advisor's well-being, the advisor's self-awareness and self-knowledge and developing of themselves and waking up to the, their full humanity for better or for worse and being able to fully understand anybody else's pain. You have to touch your own. You have to do that. And spending time in solitude, it's all so important and it's all so absent. And yeah. when I recently, it was interesting because when I applied for CE units for my mindfulness course, I got 7.5 for some reason out of like 13 or whatever. And this time around, I did not get a lot of CEs at all. Julie and I didn't get a lot of CEs and I wondered why. And they were really strict about the knowledge topics. Like advisor yep. well-being is not a knowledge topic. Advisor yep, I... self-awareness is not a knowledge topic. So uh, it's important to me. It should be important to them. But, and if you're going, just forget it. <laughs> right. I mean, I've been an advisor myself for 25 years as well. Um, a little more than that, 25 years. And it wasn't, and I've meditated for longer than that. And it wasn't until four years ago, I had the courage to rename my firm Mindful Money mm -hmm. because I was so afraid of what the judgment would be about the, oh, that's soft, that's squishy, that's silly. That's, you know, how can you call it? But it's so entwined. It yeah. is so important that both clients and advisors, you know, embrace mindfulness because that's otherwise we're going to react ourselves to, you know, oblivion. We're going yeah. to react ourselves yep. to death, right? Which is not good. 
And they're still not on board. And the question, you know, everybody wants me to phrase it in terms of ROI. And I'm just right. like, <laughs> you know, I once you start to, I remember Sam Harris said once on one of his podcasts that made me laugh because I totally agreed. He said, if you were to tell me that we have all this research that shows you that mindfulness is bad for you. He said, you know what? I would still do it because I know from my own personal experience. And he's like, and that's not going to happen. But what I'm saying is once you experience what it is like to get to know who you really are and what you're about, you know, I'm not going to say there's no turning back because a lot of people quit immediately because it's terrifying. Yep. But even if they quit immediately and it was terrifying, they had that moment and they know that there is a different way to be out there. There's a different way to act, to think, to relate. And it changes who you are, really. Yeah. So I was going to say, if it's not ROI, what are, and you were just about to go into it, I think, what are the benefits for being a mindful advisor? What do I get out of it if I'm going to be mindful? Well, you get benefits for your own ability to be at choice with your attention. Being at choice with your attention is hard. So it doesn't mean mindfulness equals focus. You know, so there are several types of practices. There's focused awareness, which is great for that convergent thinking. And then there's pure awareness, open awareness, which is better for creativity and divergent thinking. So it helps your creativity as well as helping your focus. So it helps you mm -hmm. home in as well as broaden. It helps with emotional agility, with uh, cognitive flexibility, cognitive agility. It boosts well-being. It There's that old study from Matt Killingsworth, an un, A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind, that was actually demonstrated that when even when people were doing something they didn't want to do, if they were paying attention to it, they were happier than when their mind was wandering. So focus, as well as creativity, as well as getting to know your own experience, and then there's this whole other level so first you get to know your own experience and then there is, well, let's reflect on that and decide for ourselves, is this how we want to be? Because your brain is a predictive engine and you act the way you act because your brain is predicting that you should act that way. And if you want to change how you're doing things, guess what you have to do? You have to change how you're doing things. So there's no way your brain is going to predict that you behave differently when the person you really, you know, who really like pushes your buttons, when they walk into the room, you will behave the way you always behave until you start doing something different. Because your brain says, oh, it's them again. Let's do the thing because your brain's lazy and takes the path of least resistance. And you've got that neural pathway that says, oh, it's the person who pushes my buttons. So it's hard work. You have to change your brain. You have to change the way your brain is going to predict. And that comes from first learning how my brain predicts. So right. you learn about your brain and then you say, oh, well, here's a bunch of stuff that's good. And here's a bunch of stuff that I need to change because my brain is not going to change on its own. So I have to work on that. And we have practices. It's like mindfulness 2.0. We have practices to change those things, to change the way you think, to change your brain, to change the way you behave. So, but that's not to be confused with mindfulness is about changing your behavior because it's not. So right. mindfulness is about getting to know who you are and how you got to be here. It doesn't really matter how you got to be here, but here you are. You've got these behaviors. You've got these stories you tell yourself. How's that working for you? Is it working right. or not? Where is it not working? Okay, then let's work on that. So a lot of people who, when I see a lot of mindfulness presentations, they're jumping right into pivoting once you're uncomfortable. And that's like missing the whole foundation of why you're practicing in the first place. And then missing the whole kind of, well, let's identify what about the way we are being that isn't working for us. And then let's identify a path forward to try to shift that. So it's like gravely simplifying it to mindfulness equals trying to be happier, and it's not. You said earlier something about there was something about your husband when you met him that was different, or maybe not when you met him, but after you had the circle of financial advisor friends, and there's something different about him. What is it specifically? Because I think we could, I'm not trying to get to ROI here, but I want to know how do you identify when you're looking at 
there's this room of advisors. Can you look at them and say, that one's mindful, that one's not, that one's not. And what are those identifying marks, if you will? They're simple, but they can't be fakes. And I can tell you that because I've been with people who are faking them. And I'm like, oh, they can't see me. I'm looking at them and I just know. And here's what you know. Your nervous system knows. That whole, you know, the body Mm -hmm. keeps the score thing. And Elizabeth, Lisa Feldman Barrett would say, your brain keeps the score and your body is the scorecard, which I like even better. But your nervous system is telling a story at every moment. So I can walk up to you and I can look you in the eye and I can shake your hand and I can be, you know, present for that. And I can still not be there. And you can still feel like that's just a person in front of me shaking my hand and looking me in the eye. And I can shake your hand and look you in the eye and you can feel that I am open to getting know you, to know you and enthusiastic about that. And I am interested in you in that moment. You can feel that. I think that's the path to ROI. I mean, if the industry or you wanted to gather students who were, who wanted to, you know, cause you can change, you can input mindfulness, but you can attract, you know, with something else and then offer mindfulness as the service. <laughs> I do, you can increase your ROI and you could give them mindfulness to do that. But the idea of actually being open and aware and kind and sweet and authentic and yourself and embracing that, that's attractive. That's not repellent. Like that's an attractive thing. Yeah, you can feel when somebody is defensive. You just, it's kind of hard to explain, but when you are aware of your own inner experience and you're kind of tracking and you're monitoring how your nervous system is doing and the quality of your mind, and you're always kind of continuously tracking that, not like in a heavy way, it just becomes part of how you walk through life. And when you're doing that, you instantly feel other people and how they are toward you. And, but I don't think everybody feels that though in the same way. So it becomes really obvious. It's like, there's like this big spotlight or there's like speakers around how they're behaving to you. And it becomes, that's the superpower is there. You sense yourself and you sense others in a really kind of heightened way. So your openness and your receptivity and your sensing of your own nervous system and others is heightened. That's what, and is that what the, you would say? What would you say? So, and the only way you would have, so you're, those speakers are on regardless of whether or not you're aware. Right. Of you're, right? <laughs> right. So the only way you know that you're projecting and you have, again, it has to be authentic, but you're projecting. Right. No matter what right? you're doing, it. you know, yourself helps you, you know, manage what you're projecting better. Yeah, so it's like I said once on a recently on a podcast, but you have a be you have a way of being no matter what right now, right? And so you're whenever you walk into a room, you have a way of being. So what is it? Do you even know? Do you have a way of exploring that with yourself in a compassionate way? And do you have a way of working, being with and working with, as Rick Hansen would say, your own moment-to-moment experience so that you can regulate yourself and you can, that what you are sending through those speakers is love and is acceptance and is openness, no matter who the other person is. Do you have the ability to do that? Do you have the ability to let the guard down, to like table the biases and the expectations and even your own memories? Because this is where your brain gets in the way. Your brain has, you know, somebody walks in the room who always pushes your buttons and your brain is like, oh, it's that person again who pushes the buttons. So let's be, you know, let's get fully armed. Right. And you have got to instead say it's that person and not do that. And instead, just shower that person with compassion and loving kindness and open up your expectations and just say, like, welcome whoever you want to show up as today, because we will see people as who we want them to be, even when they're not that person, because we're like so dedicated to what we've seen in the past. Our mental grooves are firm. Yes. So we see, we have these past colored glasses And we walk through life with past colored glasses and it's not serving us. I'm wondering just as a corollary, what are some of the, and it's not ROI, but if if I'm a client and I'm looking at advisors, what are some of the benefits of working with a more mindful advisor? I don't know 
who I don't know a lot of people who talk about that they're practice mindfulness. In fact, in my classes, I have people who ask me to come to their like industry groups or whatever or universities. And every time I get, oh, this is next level. The industry isn't ready for this. And what they mean is the industry isn't ready to pay for it. And the industry right. isn't ready to give credit for it. And I believe that. I mean, because I see it all the time. I see it all day long. And somebody will show up, some marketing genius, and it won't be me, clearly, will show up. And Julie and I, Julie Fortin and I, always like, we're not going to do it. We're not going to hire some genius to phrase this in a way that everybody's going to want to do it. And we want to tell the story as it's genuinely told by us, which is, this makes you a better parent. It makes you a better friend. It makes you a better human being for yourself. It makes you a better caretaker and caregiver of yourself. Right. And the people around you, which includes your clients and your kids right. and your yeah, family. How could it not affect the client relationships? Do, like, how could it not? I mean, really. And one thing that affects that I've actually heard people spin in a negative way is it will affect your values are not something you have for your whole life. You can absolutely change your values. And when you have a practice like this, it is absolutely possible. And it happened to me. And I know that because it happened to me that your values change and that yep. you're not as interested in, you know, I had all the trappings. I was, it, my interests were far more external they were, you know, what I really want to do is spend 10 days in silence in a monastery. Like, that's the thing I look forward to spending a bunch of money, not looking at anybody or talking to anybody for 10 days or looking at my phone or reading a book or listening to music. Like, that to me is just heaven and I can't wait yeah. to do it again. So your values do change. What you want to spend your money on could absolutely change. And, but in my book... It's, you might want to spend more time, you know, doing service, volunteering. You might want to give more money away than you used to. So your lens can definitely shift. You see pain more. It's true. Yeah. I'm not yeah. going to lie. And, but that just means you're human and you're awake to being human and you are open to the human condition in all of its forms and not avoiding it. I'm wondering, this just came out of something you just said. I'm wondering if one of some of the pushback that we get from the industry is we are taught to accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. It's stuff, it's portfolio value, it's grow it, it's grow it, it's grow it. You know, that's the ultimate. That's how you get your AUM. That's how you get your compensation. That's how it's all based on that. That's how you're judged against your peers, your quality of work, whatever, right? You're a vice president because you manage more money. You're a senior vice president because you manage even more money, right? All everything is based on accumulation. And if you are aware and you wake up and your values change and you start giving it away and supporting and being more community member, and it's not that important anymore. I'm wondering if the industry is worried about, we're going to lose our growth metric then. Like, I wonder if they're partially worried about that. That is such a good question. And I see on LinkedIn, who named this and they need to be fired, but degrowth. I will say that I am not, I don't think we all should be growing everything at all costs. Absolutely not. Right. And I right. didn't grow up that way. So although I had a bunch of trappings because like I got a bunch of money and I bought you know, some cool stuff, it, by no means it was what anything close to it everybody else was doing. And I didn't grow up as a materialist and I'm not now. I have four pairs of shoes, just so you know. I have the closet that- the I man, have more shoes than you. Yeah, I, feel I have bad. the closet that the man is supposed to have in the house and it's like a third full, like I have no clothing. I just, I don't have a lot of stuff. So I have demonstrated to myself that you can have just the most rich and rewarding life experience without accumulating stuff. And in fact, I'm like allergic to shopping. And so I don't, and that's a value, you know, and that needs to be people who are accumulating, you know, what are you doing? What are you trying to do? What is, I have this pause practice for, for just before you want to buy something. You know, just yep. pause and it's like, what am I doing? You know, what am I feeling right now? Because usually there's like, I'm having a feeling and I'm trying to get rid of the feeling or change the feeling. So I'm buying the thing because I think the thing is going to give me the feeling I really want. 
which by the way, never works, or it works for three minutes. And then, because guess what? You've had this feeling before. <laughs> this isn't the first time. And you bought the thing and you had the, you know, wonderful euphoria for three and a half minutes. And then guess what? Here I am again buying something else because I'm trying to recapture that feeling. And it's like never going to happen. It's chasing the wrong feelings. So I absolutely am a fan of chasing different feelings and having different metrics and having different ROI. And I love my friend James Brewer from Chicago. He calls his metric, he calls it lives under care, L-U-C. L-U-C. Lives under care, go JB, at Envision Wealth Planning. And so what I would like to see, I'm not even in the industry, okay, but what I would like to see as an outsider, it is like all of these metrics need to change. Look at this planet, okay? This planet has not sustained these metrics. We are in an unsustainable situation right now, in case you all haven't heard. Yeah. <laughs> and every person on this planet needs to look at that, learn about that, and shift their consumption habits. Like this is a real thing. So that to me is fully embodying when you have this practice, as you know, you don't just fully embody your own humanity, but then you have this like boundless compassion for all of humanity and you just want everybody to like start doing it right. You know, you want people to realize, you know, that they're a hamster on a wheel. You want, so there's, there has to be this balance between like, everybody needs to know this now and you know, how am I, what's my little corner of the world? And for me, it was mindful schools and it was advisors for like, how am I going to bring this to some people to whom it might matter? Yeah. So I actually want to ask a specific question about the book. So you start the second chapter with a series of questions designed to basically pull from the reader, the advisor, their definition of what it means to be an advisor. And you leave it open-ended. Like, and I was really wanting like a list of these are the different things that advisors do that you should mm. choose from, because I, I think the industry gets something wrong here. I think we get the, I think many advisors think their role is picking better securities and timing the market, you know, to improve enhanced returns. And I think that's probably 80% of financial media, 90% of the financial advisors think this way. But and they're not going to read that book. None of those people are at chapter two of that book. Like people, <laughs> do you know what I mean? That's a good point. <laughs> like they didn't even see the book. So if you add <laughs> chapter two of that book, it's because you think there's a different way to be. Yeah. Okay. And so it's like, what do you think you should be doing? You know, that lives under care. What should your prayer, what kind of person are you really? You know, when you look at your, how you are with your clients, how you are with your family, how you spend your days, literally moment to moment, if I were to, to see your life and what you did for three days, what would I say about you? You know, what kind of person do you want, do you want to be? Are you being that? And that's what kind of advisor do you want to be? What, how do you want your clients to feel? You know, and it's like, I want them to feel love and comfortable and secure and confident. I would say those are like the top things, but nobody says love. Are you kidding me? But I want to get love in there. I want it because yep. guess yep. what comes from love? By the way, loyalty goes right with love and trust. Well, there, is, there's your ROI. Yeah. <laughs> you know, love and trust and connection and loyalty kind of Works. all go together. And you don't second get like my husband's clients say to him, you know, he'll say, oh, well, let me just run through. And they're like, don't worry, Dave. You know, you don't have to yep. tell me about that. Just... Let's just go and like play some pickleball or whatever. Um, <laughs> so love. My message is love. And my message is also growth cannot be your metric. Holy Moses. Right. Financial. Now, I won't say growth. Gro human growth can be like personal growth can be your metric. You know, your compassion can be your metric. Connection, well-being, happiness. That can be your metric. You know, lives under care, lives served. Do people feel served? So I, that could be your metric. I, I, I love this. So I'm now just assuming that this is what the future of financial advice is about. Yes. It's about, it's the changing of the metric. It's yes. we're not going to manage yes. AUM. We're going to, we're going to see about love. We're not yes. going to manage revenue. We're going to see about clients, you know, lives under care. Is that what you're teaching in the class? Yes. So we said, you know, we had to have this conversation like, well, the CFP board only gave us 3.5, you know, credits and we asked for 16 and we we're like, well, but this is our material, you know, and 
it's the future of financial advice. It's the future. So it's not in there. It's not in the knowledge right. topics because it's the future. And right. it is relational neuroscience and it is futures thinking and creativity and imagination and games. We're going to play some games and play and all of these things that have shown to be so good for people, but we don't value them as grownups. And we need, and, but look where that has gotten us, honestly. Look where that has gotten us. Look at the planet. Look at wealth inequality. Look at the fact that people who are making 250 grand are living paycheck to paycheck. What's happening? Look at credit well, look card at debt. Suicide rates, depression rates, anxiety, yes. partisanship. Yes. Look at just yeah. look at any headline. It's anything. Why are we anything. here? Anything. Yeah. And another thing we really tackle when you're tackling attention and consumption is sense making and social media. Like, are yeah. you addicted to social media, people? And why the heck are you there? You know, what is it that you're getting? What are you doing when you're there? What are you getting? Where do you get your news from? What enrages you? Why are you doom scrolling? You know, look at your behaviors that are really bad for your well-being, that keep you up at night, that prevent you from sleeping. People aren't sleeping. It's like yep. you need to sleep like a lot more than you think. So it's about the latest science of sleep hygiene and exercise hygiene. And we don't touch diet because I'm not touching anybody's diet. But your danger, I've, the third wire. Yeah, I just feel like, no, we're not talking about that. We'll say eat well and kind of walk by that one. Um, <laughs> you know, when I don't drink alcohol, but I'm not going to touch that one. But let me just tell you, no research says it's good for you. So, you know, we kind of tread lightly on a couple of topics, but we're really getting into what is it that we're here on this planet to do? And that's what's scary, right? Because if we've done it a certain way for a thousand years or the last hundred years or the 40 years of our own lives, and then we have to wake up to a new way of doing it, oh, that's going to be a lot of work and change. Yes. And gosh, do I really want to commit to that? Maybe not. So you know, that's the. Yeah. So I will tell people, you know, they're like, oh, what comes next? And I'm like, okay. So when I first taught it, like 2019, it was like, oh, what comes next? And I thought, oh, I haven't made this point well enough if somebody asks me that because so now I begin with like this is for the rest of your natural life okay so it's right. not like you're gonna take this eight-week class and then like poof something magical is gonna happen and then like you're like a different person or the better person or you're making more money and like none of that zero of that you know this is you're learning a different way of being with yourself and with your experience that will enrich your life and elevate your practice and enrich your relationships for the rest of your life only if you keep doing it for the rest of your life and right. people say oh that's too much work and i'm like i get it bye bye but my door is always I open I want to sort of end with a couple more personal questions. Yeah. So is there anything that people don't know about you or maybe you've told them and they forgot about you that you really want them to know? I think people don't know about me. I feel like I'm an open book. People don't know about me. I sing and dance. Oh, okay. I do. I have a hidden talent. So yeah, so my mom was an opera singer. My, my dad was a monk. So I, have, I come from like serious like vocal genetics. Oh, cool. So yeah, I can sing and dance. That's great. And the last one is if you could get a true answer, a single truth that you knew was going to be the truth to a difficult question in your life, what would the question be? What would the question be? You know, it's so old, but it has to do with consciousness really. And like, what the heck is it? You know, is it an emergent property? Are the panpsychics real? Right. And it's just, it comes out of matter. Like, I don't know if the AI people are going to get to it. I have no idea. It's so, I just don't know what it is. Like, how are we here? How are you here, Jonathan, knowing what your experience of Jonathan is? Like, how do you do that? You, so your question, the truth you want to know is what is consciousness? Exactly. That is probably the heaviest question I've ever heard. Don't you want to know, though? <laughs> well, do I you do, wanna... but I've never heard somebody state it. That's awesome. Oh, really? Oh, Sorry. <laughs> I love it. So how do people connect with you? How do they find your course? They can go to marymartinphd.com. And the reason I have to say I use my PhD is because Mary Martin, you might not know, was like the most famous actress back in the day. She was the first Peter Pan. So to get like marymartin.com would have been impossible because, you know, of her. So that's why, because I don't like to walk around like I have a PhD, but that's why it's marymartinphd.com. That's me. 
And I've been blogging there for years, and my courses are also at futureoffinancialadvice.net. But you can get there from marymartinphd.com. You can sign up for a newsletter with all kinds of fun finds and interesting musings for me, like what the heck is consciousness? So yeah, that's it. I just want to say thank you for coming on. This has been one of my favorite conversations since I've started podcasting. I am so in alignment with everything you say. I hope every advisor takes your course. Oh, thank you. you. And I thank you so much for having me. And be well. And thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.